Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, it's funny being back in this hotel uh, at the Mondrian Courtyard because one of the first times I came across to LA, at the, at the height of the first internet boom, mm. they, uh, I, I, some Australian tech company had rented out Skybar. Okay. And they'd paid $50,000 for Steven Seagal, who at that stage was still a B-grade actor, um, <laughs> to come for 15 minutes. I thought that's, wow. that was really the high point of the yeah, of right. kind of the dot-com Australian <laughs> madness, was to come to LA and hang out with a B-grade celebrity. Amazing. <laughs> but it's sort, of, it's sort of weird, because I remember the discussions back then was that the internet was going to destroy entertainment and television mm. would be over. Mm. And it's kind of weird that, I mean, almost 20 years later, mm. this is this is the golden age of television, mm. and it's largely because of digital. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, the evolution of the creative tools and, the, you know, the sort of the complexity now of the stories you can create with, you know, much longer form you know content you know being a, a you know 20 hour binge or whatever it is so. yeah it's almost exactly to what we thought was going to happen because back then everyone was saying oh it's all about three minute entertainment and mm. watching on mobile screens so yeah I, I think they would be horrified to know that actually the, the one place you can actually see Dolby Vision 4k is on a streaming <laughs> service yeah yeah, yeah. it's uh, obviously we pretty much see you know all layers of and all comp uh, structures of content you know flourishing at the moment so CTV's in its golden age as far as most people think at the moment. So I'm having a, a, a very civilized cup of tea with Steve Cronin who's the CEO and founder of The Fifth Kind. Uh, you may have actually seen The Fifth Kind uh, when you've been waiting for one of those infamous post credit scenes <laughs> on a Marvel super blockbuster film. Uh, I think because you, you, you worked on the, um, the most recent Avengers film, right? That's correct. We have the last 10 years have actually uh, been working with Marvel Studios as their kind of digital backbone. Uh, you know, being the operational tool that helps keep all their content secure and manage all their approvals and collaboration and distribution. Uh, so what's been great about working with Marvel is we were there right from the inception of their studio and they're essentially able to form uh, their organization uh, workflows around the product. Right. So, you know, we touch a huge range of different file types and different, uh, you know, structures of metadata and, and touch basically everyone across the organization. So I'm, I'm really interested in this and I want to come back to this idea of thinking from the bottom up of the future of work from the actual files that we work with. Mm -hmm. uh, but before we get on to that, I, uh, I'm really fascinated by how you started because you actually started out as essentially as the head of IT for the Matrix films. Uh, yes, yeah, started off on the Matrix sequels in 2001 in Sydney, Australia. Uh, and I was the IT manager and I helped facilitate uh, in implementing all the digital systems uh, across the whole uh, production. And we had two films, the video game, the Animatrix. So it was essentially like making two movies, a TV show and a video game all at the same time. Uh, on my first day, I was handed a pile of paper with a, a printout of every single file that existed on Matrix 1. And of course, we looked at it and nothing meant anything. There was no visual representation of anything that existed. So of course, no single file got reused. Every piece of the Matrix code and everything you saw was completely regenerated from scratch. And I was lucky enough to go around to every department and understand what were the types of information everybody was trying to manage, 
how did that information flow between each production, or each, sorry, each department, and really what were the ripple effects of each decision change? What did it mean when something was approved or when a scene changed, etc.? And just watching people trying to update many different systems to keep all this information in line, and then just seeing a lot of uh, inefficiencies in, in how people collaborated and communicated. And uh, you know, I saw an opportunity to create an information backbone uh, to keep everything well, in well, line. Well, the, well, Wazowski's quite interested in this at that level detail. I mean, I mean, one of the things about their their style was to experiment a lot with the capture devices. Were they mm -hmm. quite interested on the collaboration level as well? It's it's an interesting thing that you know, for the most part, and we've seen this evolve more as productions become more digital. Most of the the funds tend to want to be funneled into what uh, makes the movie visually uh, more spectacular or right. you know, create a great story. There's traditionally not a lot of investment in the operational efficiency of how the production works. You can just throw more PAs at it. So we, <laughs> we came at it quite early and have, have kind of watched this, or this industry evolve over the last 10 years as people started shooting stereo and uh, these 3D productions came in, that was really a big trigger where it became almost impossible to not manage a production without a digital system. Right. Um, you, could, you couldn't just scream at 10 personal assistants to get it done, right? They, correct. Yeah, they, there's they, just they too needed, much data being generated that needed to be connected. And, and we see that evolve more and more. There's a lot more digital tools coming on set um, to help people capture all that metadata. But we're really focused on being that studio backbone and enterprise backbone that consolidates all these different uh, files and all the different metadata and facilitate those workflows of how do you collaborate, distribute, communicate, etc., uh, to help your organization be more efficient. So I'd actually never considered this because you know usually when people talk about digital transformation, they're talking about you know manufacturing or uh, retail. Mm -hmm. But but do you think part of Marvel's success has been the fact that it has invested in these? Um, operational digital efficiencies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's something that we see as a pain point across all the studios. They're very siloed. You know, um, you know, if you can imagine a studio that's been around many decades, over time, different departments have had different problems and they'll just go grab their own tool and solve it. And so what you end up with is a lot of fragmentation of here's a document management system, here's a casting system, here's a daily system. And people are now starting to get system fatigue of not knowing which system to log into to find the file they want. We were very lucky with Marvel that we got in so early and, right. and sort of prevented that fragmentation. Um, and you know, we believe you know, they're the most efficient studio out there. Well, what does that efficiency buy you besides saving time and money? Like, does it mm -hmm. change the way you work? From a creative perspective, what we start seeing is a, a high number of versions. So people are communicating quicker and therefore the feedback loop is, is reduced and then people are generating, you know, more content. What's interesting about the movie process is, you know, you've got hundred plus million dollars to make a movie and you've got a certain amount of time to do that. And it's how much content can you create? How much can you evolve each version of a shot in that certain amount of time? So we're helping facilitate the efficiency in that communication, which is inherently creating more versions of, of files, therefore creating better quality content. In some ways, this, if, you, if you sort of think on this uh, of a linear scale of collaboration, you've got Stanley Kubrick on one end, who's sort of this obsessive micromanager sure. who does, wants to do everything himself. Mm -hmm. And then you have this vision of Marvel with the, you know, the high velocity of multiple versions of the file being created. Mm -hmm. so, so do you think now in this age, I mean, the more people that touch something, the better it is? Or is it more about 
making sure that the people who are actually need to work together can do so effectively. Yes, uh, I believe the latter is <laughs> is giving them that, that one platform they can log into, they can have their inbox, here's everything I need to review, having the tools to be able to you know annotate, frame accurate, communicate, collaborate. And you know we still traditionally see a lot of segmentation between a viewing platform and a, and a, a communication platform. You know, you'd look at a 20-minute TV show and still email all of your feedback because you're like, at two seconds change this, at 20 <laughs> seconds change that. But we're building tools that we believe make it more powerful to collaborate through a digital system because there's a, a connective tissue that is, is spread out across your, your whole organization so that information can be entered once and know that it can be shared with all the relevant people and, and uh, you know, spread across the organization quickly. So if, you, if you're an, a, a, an organization in another sector, what can you learn from looking at a studio like Marvel about the way that they've managed to get creative people to effectively work together quickly and rapidly. It, you know, it's interesting when, you know, my favorite thing to do is look for patterns across not only how productions work or studios work, but bigger enterprises and organizations. And, and really, they all have the same problems. You know, you have an art department, more creatively focused uh, process. You have a visual effects very more technical, you have a production which is more business. You've got brand asset people who want to make sure logos are used in a certain way. Correct. And you know, and funneling that all into this massive marketing machine. And you know, traditionally on a production there's this kind of wall between the production itself and the rest of the studio and the, and the marketing team, you know, sits on the studio side of the fence. So there's always kind of this battle between how to extract information from the production. And so we help facilitate that by uh, example, giving people access to just files that are creatively approved but not legally rejected. So really leveraging metadata to control who can see what and not being dependent just on folder structures where traditionally if something's work in progress or approved, you're moving it from one folder to another and I'm giving you permission to one folder versus the other. Now we can leverage all these different pieces of metadata uh, to be able to have a really seamless access control layer which just removes that friction of making sure people are seeing the right version of a file. Or, uh, how, how important is having very structured information and sort of hierarchical metadata. I mean, because there's, there's sort of, there's one school of thought that with enough good search or even machine learning algorithms, you can just have a whole pile of mess mm -hmm. and have the system sorted out. But, but in your model, it's really about having quite a, a consistent, coherent upfront structure or taxonomy of how information should be organized. That's correct. Um, you know, we, we took the approach of, you know, we see a lot of these folder systems and you know, another component when I walked into Matrix was he was a massive file name convention. It had like 20 to 30 different fields and no one could follow it because it was so complex. Who did? Wachowski? Uh, on the Wachowskis. Well, it wasn't created by the Wachowskis, it was created by the, the, the IT team, but trying <laughs> to see people look at this thing and just be dumbfounded about it. Right, so they actually how, were, they had naming conventions where all of the logic was essentially in the folder names. Yeah, well, even worse was primarily in the file name itself. Oh my God. So you're ending up with these massive file names. <laughs> it was just completely unmanageable. Um, and yeah, we leverage AI to do things like visual analysis and speech to text and, and try and facilitate as much as possible. But we couldn't look at a concept and determine, you know, uh, is it one character from another and what scene are they used in and what sets and these relationships between all these kind of uh, data concepts some of them being virtual and some of them being physical yeah. so you could have a, a physical set which is set in a virtual scene and sequence and shot etc and you know it's quite common for people to try and understand how do these pieces of information connect and you can't really do that without you know a, a database a digital system so you're saying just naming the file you know 
new scene three. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so exactly. Good and of course, the final, final, finals <laughs> yeah. and all that fun stuff. Um, so truly leveraging, you know, a, a taxonomy, a meta structure uh, to organize information and to be able to facilitate even relationships between information. So we have what we call inherent metadata, where, for example, Robert Downey Jr. can be defined as the character Iron Man. And say, for example, I give you access to anything where the character is Iron Man. If I upload a photo of Robert Downey Jr., we do a visual analysis, facial detection, we determine it's Robert Downey Jr., you inherit that data that he's Iron Man, now you see it. So, so you know, there's an interesting angle on this, which is, you know, in many industries I've been looking at, people are trying to work out the impacts of automation and, and algorithms on, on creative work. Yeah. But it seems like there must be a lot of human labor that's wasted due to the inefficiency of, you mm -hmm. know, bad handling of data and files and workflows and that actually the more we can automate some of this it should actually free up creative people to actually do the stuff that presumably machines can't do as well yes and and that's the patterns we look for what are those pain points you know quite common ones are you know how do i make sure i'm looking at the right version of a file so you know, we build a, a piece of functionality that kind of sits between a file and a folder that allows you to, to containerize different versions of files. Um, you know, the question of what was that video we looked at yesterday or commented on, you know, making sure you have a history module to quickly go and look at that history of those things that you've been looking at or working on. So just a couple of examples of common pain points of, of how to find files, how to communicate, how do you make sure you're looking at the right version of the file, how do you get people access, how do you distribute, um, all common patents, basically across any industry. I've, I've been looking at this idea of patents, I've been thinking of them as almost talent patents, that, you know, th there's a way of almost recording a macro for what smart people do in certain situations. So, yeah. and, and you see this, you know, like in healthcare, like the way someone will handle a particular patient, and, and we're, we're sort of slowly gaining the ability to record this. Mm. And, and, and sometimes they're really useful training machine learning algorithms, other times, it's just a way of capturing knowledge that could be lost. Mm. Uh, are you seeing similar patterns of what smart, creative people do, you know, in the way that they solve problems? Yeah, obviously you have different degrees of capabilities and different talents. You know, we, we very much need to find that balance between building a UI and an experience that's, you know, fine-tuned for an executive versus a creative versus someone who's more technical you know and they can all handle different amounts of information being presented to them and and finding that balance between you know what you expose and, and what you can dive well, into just on that example like how would a studio executive look at something differently to a creative versus a technical person like um, your version of that information. <laughs> it's really for us, our goal is how do you get that almost one click play? Like you've received the link in an email, you click it, boom, you go into that video. It's going to automatically play. It's going to automatically go to the next, you know, video. It's going to hide most of the metadata and just, you know, almost but, but there's, just... There's sort of a there's, a, there's a kind of a hidden politics in what information you expose too, right? I mean... Yeah, absolutely. Not everyone should see the legal status or the creative status. So there's, there's tiers even within the access controls of, of what metadata you get exposed to um, and as well as what users you get exposed to. You know, right. we've got actors in the system. You shouldn't necessarily be able to see Natalie Portman's email address. So a lot of control around the files you can see, the metadata you can see, the users you can see. Um, you know, making sure that if you happen to have exposure to Avengers 4, you know, there's there's even a concern around you might get access to see in a drop down what characters are in that movie. Right. That's a problem. Well, when you look at the extent that people go to like 
try and track down Games of Thrones episode lines, mm-hmm. and, yep. and they're even filming things that never happened, you know, yes. just to throw people off. I mean, how? I mean, security is a big issue now. Mm-hmm. Um, when you when you look at like what happened with uh, Sony and North Korea, yep. what exactly did happen there? Like, where, where was the where was their where was their flaw in their network, or how was how something at that scale able to even happen? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting challenge, and, and fundamentally, you know, the backbone of, of any modern system has to be security. Right. Um, you know, we've done an insane amount of work to you know build a, a a system that is you know as secure as possible, and that requires us to do quarterly pen tests and source code review and have all sorts of other functionality around intrusion detection systems. And um, definitely, studios becoming way more uh, aggressive at what their requirements are. Um, you know, it's a challenge in a production studio world that there's a lot of, you know, BYOD. You know, everyone's bringing their own laptops onto a production. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, challenges in the information infrastructures and, and the, the system architectures that exist. So our goal is to build a platform that, you know, people trust as, as you know, the source of truth for information and, and know that it's completely secure. Um, but the way that you know Sony got attacked was, you know, basically through you know uh, social engineering through through a virus that was able to get behind their firewall and affect their network. And interestingly enough, at the time Sony was very anti-cloud. You know, there was a not a lot of faith yet to be able to put your trust in someone else's infrastructure. And funnily enough, in that hack, all their cloud systems were the only ones that weren't penetrated. Right. And so, so it was actually after their, they, they went after their internal service that so they had yeah. on premise. So now there's this big shift to, you know, an AWS, you know, who's built military grade infrastructure now, and um, so it's entirely possible that the next Avengers film is sitting on an AWS server somewhere. Well, fun have been, well, funnily enough, uh, you know, Marvel and Disney are very much moving towards, you know, the cloud cloud infrastructures who have traditionally been very uh, reluctant and, and very much investing in everything being local, but you know. All these you know, providers have done the work to build the trust and to build the technologies. So we are st- starting to see a bigger shift to the cloud and, and that brings a whole bunch of other unique capabilities as far as minimizing data movement. Right. So, you know, traditionally a film is shot, you know, at a location and the data is sent to a post house and a visual effects company and, you know, all that information is filtered into a production, it's sent to a studio, it's reviewed and approved. But now, you know, we have the opportunity to move that data into the cloud once and facilitate the full creative workflow. Right, to and, and, the and even the final end file, which is made mm-hmm. available for Netflix, mm-hmm. could essentially be on the same server. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. And, you know, bandwidth has been fundamentally our biggest challenge, you know, especially when people are shooting, you know, 4K, 6K, K frames. It's not uncommon to generate half a petabyte in two to three months. Well, well I, I heard that, I mean, one of the biggest challenges with getting more... F- for let alone 8K content, it's just the, the amount of time to render all the CGI footage. CGI footage sure. is just uneconomical. Well, it's it's interesting. Like all layers of, of infrastructure getting pushed, the speed of storage, the speed of data transfer, the the ability to to render, and a lot of the big visual effects companies now, you know, they already have a lot of investment in existing infrastructure, but now they're all investing in overflow capabilities into the cloud. So if they, you know, if they have a, a big job that's, you know, needs to be delivered, that they can maximize their internal investment on on their own infrastructure, but also burst out to external infrastructure for, for you know for computation on CGI exactly. rendering and things like yeah. that storage. Yeah. That's fascinating. 
So when you look ahead 10 years, um, you know, if you were sort of going to design a 21st century <laughs> studio with, you know, with no restrictions, mm -hmm. what, is that, what does that start to look like? Uh, I mean, where, where do you get the next big jump in productivity and collaboration? Mm, such a big question. You know, there's still this big unknown is what is that platform in 10 years? You know, yeah. are, we, are we still going to the cinema? Are we, you know, how much are we viewing it in a headset? Um, well, if you, if you assume that a lot of our viewing patterns are the same, mm. Sure. You know, big screens, small screens, immersive screens. On the production creative side, mm -hmm. I mean, do you, do you end up with, you know, just a handful of essentially freelancers, you know, creative freelancers, and the studio itself is more of a virtual concept of, of digital infrastructure? Yeah, there is a, you know, a lot of that happening already. You know, a lot of the concept artists are all, you know, spread around the world and just, you know, getting ideas and, and again, funneling them into a central system and, you know the the visual effects companies tend to have a lot of people on on, on payroll, but you you also starting to see that fragment as well. So, you know, very much so, the the creative team can be globally distributed, and of course that that's you know amplifies the need to have a system to unify everybody. Um, you know, we're well, starting. Well, people often look at the entertainment industry as a forerunner for the kind of more freelancer or agent based uh, cohorts you bring together for production, and yeah. that could actually be a model for you know, big enterprise as well. Yeah, and it's, it's funny that one of the fundamental differences we see between a production, um, you know, resource, you know, those people are being employed for six to 12 months. They don't necessarily have as much um, skin in the game as far as the long-term preservation of a file, how right. it's organized, versus someone in an enterprise that they know it's gonna be their problem for two, three, you know, however many years they're gonna be on that on working for that organization, you know, someone on a production knows their job is up in X amount of months. So that's been another challenge for us is, is having people kind of invest that little bit of extra time, you know, to organize things that can be used uh, long term. And in, of course, in a Marvel world or Disney world, very franchise heavy, we start seeing massive reuse of assets. So, you know, Marvel's been able to quantify, you know, at least 1.5 million they say per production with our system, but a third of that is reuse of assets. Right. So once you start sort of having people who are being re-employed on productions, they start caring about how things are organized uh, a little bit more, maximizing that reuse of assets. Um, and when you say reuse of assets, what, what does that actually really mean? I mean, is, is that like some of the, the source material for rendering or things like that? Uh, it, it's a mix. It's, it's a mix of, of, of creative content and um, yeah, non-so-creative content. So, you know, creatively, it could be the 3D model of the Iron Man suit. As that evolves, it could be reusing, you know, potentially 3D models that we use in a previous in the, in the final, you know, in the final render. Um, being able to get a LiDAR scan of a fighter jet. Uh, being able to get a panning shot of New York or a foreground plate of a gun pop. Um, you know, there's all these kind of visual effects elements, which is just layers that you build. And, and so what oh. you're building is this long-term elements library, long-term stock footage, you know, long-term, you know, technical uh, I assets. I mean, theoretically then, you could actually have a, a Marvel universe of digital objects. Yes, yes. So you could actually then very quickly, with at a much lower cost, create a TV series or a video game mm -hmm. using those assets by even very junior people, yeah. you know, without having to like roll out a couple hundred million dollars and create. create well, that's costs. what becomes very interesting uh, is once you've created that first 
production and you've, you've created those assets around who your characters are, you've got the concept of you know what a Thanos looks like, what an Iron Man looks like, etc. Um, you can really start accelerating you know, the ability to create content reusing those assets. Now, as we go from production to production on the big features, there could be many years in between them. You know, the, the, the 3D applications may change. You know, sometimes there's an obsolescence to the, even the version of the file you were using. Um, but, you know, if you, you look at things like... Um, you've got a starting point, at least. Yeah, you've got that starting point. You can, you can modify it. And you could, you could essentially create you know, uh, whole other productions leveraging all those assets. But what you tend to see is evolutions in, in how they want the suit to look or how the character looks. So they're constantly evolving, even post-release sometimes, which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, to your point about what the platforms will be in the future, I mean, if you're trying to version things now for um, immersive virtual reality or, or video or, or, or assisted worlds or gaming, yep. having those 3D assets developed mm -hmm. for a movie it's much easier to now port that across into another environment. Yeah, and we definitely see a lot of that reuse into the marketing pipelines, into the video games, into you know all sorts of different platforms and different ways that they, they can you know license and, and monetize their assets. They're, they're even using the same assets to pass down to make toys, etc. So uh, there's an essential, uh, fundamental, uh, large amount of reuse. Um, and to give you some idea, last year Marvel distributed four and a half million files to two and a half thousand companies through our system. So you can think of every Hallmark card and every Hasbro toy and every poster and every trailer, they're all funneling through our system, getting approved and, and you know, being tracked long term. So um, you know, it's, it's amazing to see just how broad the scope of how you can share this content and allow everybody to have a unified vision of their brand and of yeah. their characters, etc. This is a new this is a new barrier to entry for other people trying to build universes or mm -hmm. studio systems. Because if you haven't invested in that level of infrastructure, yep. your ability to commercialize all the downstream opportunities yep. is, 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 is much harder. Yep. And yeah. especially that reuse element, we still see this across a lot of studios is uh, a production spins up they create their content, they stick it on an LTO tape and it goes sits on a shelf. See, so Sony was in a position to do a lot of this years ago. Mm. I mean, because they had the technology, they had the, mm -hmm. you know, their own, much more than the other traditional content studios. But yeah. in some ways it seems they were even more siloed than traditional. Yeah, they invested a hundred million dollars in a, a studio backbone system. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a large storage management component and they were trying to bring together a bunch of various tools and unfortunately so far that it hasn't quite you know, connected uh, with what the creatives need. Um, but it's, you know, it is interesting to you know, see them being you know, a technology company fundamentally. Yeah. Um, and you see it even more so with Netflix, you know, they're, they're a heavy, they're a software company who's become a content creator. Yeah. And, now and they've got very different workflows and culture as a result. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you see a big difference between a, a Warner Brothers versus a Marvel versus a Sony. Even even Fox is more corporate and well, Netflix the thing is, is more engineering. We used to talk about the synergy benefits of media and technology companies. And I remember when Sony first started its acquisition, this whole thing was, oh, well, we can now put Spider-Man bundled on a television. And, and mm. actually, I think people started to realize that was just a very facile crossover. Mm -hmm. um, that, 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 that if we get into some of this digital infrastructure stuff, that the... You know, to really be an algorithmic entertainment organization the way Netflix is, it, it requires changing your operations. 
as much as changing the cross-selling opportunities. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's things that happen outside of our system, like, you know, the data analytics around analyzing how people react to a trailer and how they tune the trailer for the next one to we should maximize also be engagement. Like a metadata layer on, yeah. on, the, on the asset. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see some amazing things, way more accelerated than I ever could imagine with AI and the creative tools. Um, you know, that they're leveraging, you know, even within a Photoshop or, you know, Maya, etc. You know, some of the stuff they're doing there is pretty amazing, um, you know, around crowd simulations and, you know, just being able to, you know, do th uh, retroscoping uh, and, and all sorts of other technical elements that are now becoming, uh, sorry, rotoscoping, more automated and more streamlined. And so the combination of, of creative AI and, and operational AI and technical AI um, are definitely starting to accelerate at a very interesting rate. You, you know, uh, do, do you think this is ultimately pushing to the point where the, the owners of these intellectual property will actually be the retailers of it as well? Uh, uh, rather than go through distributors and having invested in all of this infrastructure, they're adding that final direct-to-consumer piece starts to become almost trivial. And I think you're seeing Disney gearing yeah. up for this now. Yeah, it's 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 funny about this kind of ownership because you know even the question of, of there's always been a historical or since I guess what was it Back to the Future this idea of you having ownership over your identity and now there's it's evolving to your digital identity you know yeah. there's all these people passing away but still coming back in digital form and um, you know we're just the facilitator you know but the uh, the ownership of of content you know you see it with Disney how they've just I think far and away had a strategy that is a, at the heart of it around being a storyteller. Yeah. They now own some of the greatest stories, some of the greatest characters and their ability to combine them and to yeah. just, you know. I don't think we're going to see Star Wars on Netflix for much longer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, now they're building their own platform. There's all sorts of interesting things they can do there. You know, one of my things that I've, I've always kind of had this itch at the, you know, the back of my, my head is, I, I get exposed to so much amazing creative content that no one ever gets to see, whether it be the alternate takes of a, of a, of a shot or you know, all, all this you know, amazing creative content that comes together to create this you know, two hour movie. And when you actually watch an alternative take, that's when you truly respect, I think, an actor to see how much of it is them reading a script versus how much it is their personality. And you watch a Robert Downey Jr. Every take is different, you know, and he's saying something different and it's funny almost every time. And, you know, my, my end goal is I'd love to be able to allow people to have that um, more deeper dive, you know, behind the scenes, you know, content experience where at any point in time you can hit pause and, and dive down into set designs and alternate takes and all sorts of these other things. So, you know, I'm really hoping that someone like a Disney, you know, can now have that opportunity with their own platform to explore that. And fundamentally, we've organized all that information up front so to hopefully leverage it for, for a whole other different use case. Kubrick will be rolling over in his grave. <laughs> You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Mm -hmm.